I was born a Jew, and I guess by my own definition, I will die a Jew. I have memories of my grandfather um, grasping my head when I would see him and giving a prediction for a wonderful future, that I would grow up to be successful and that I would be happy and that I would raise a, a wonderful family. It wasn't until a lot later on that I realized what he was giving me was the Old Testament blessing. My own family, uh, my mother and father and my siblings, was a different story. Uh, I remember at the earliest age of five, six years old of, of crying myself to sleep because of the disharmony in the home, the yelling and the screaming between my mother and father. Um, my father was an abuser. My two brothers uh, grew up uh, being battered. I got a little bit of that, uh, not as much as them. My father had many affairs uh, in his life, including one with my aunt, who ultimately became his second wife. Prior uh, to turning about 17 years old all along, the idea of Jesus was, was a rather foreign idea to me. And uh, I'll never forget, when I was 17 years old, my friends walked into my den, and they said, Mike, we love you, but if you don't accept Jesus, you're going to hell. And that just was like a two-by-four across my face. But Jesus is a no-no for Jewish people, and certainly he was for me. And so the idea of accepting him as God, I, I couldn't do that. Moving forward, I, I met my beautiful wife, Karen, when I was 20. We were married at 22, and we had seven years of, of bliss, without a doubt. And then, all of a sudden, things just went south. I was going downhill uh, fast. It was a horrible, horrible time. And I started acting, in many ways, uh, like my father. And it scared me to death. And one night, I'll never forget, at about 1 o'clock in the morning, I came downstairs. I picked up the only Bible that we had in the house, and I said... Okay, Jesus, if you are who you say you are, show yourself to me. That started me on a journey that was really kind of a two-year journey coming up to Bel Air Press, reading books, reading as much of the scriptures as I could navigate to try and find out who was Jesus and how would my acceptance of him as Lord would impact my Jewishness. After some time, it occurred to me and I felt the tugging of the Holy Spirit that Jesus was calling me and wanting my commitment and I, I gave it to him. My family didn't outright reject me but they certainly rejected what I believed. I was a bit ostracized from family events but it didn't matter because my life started to be enriched and blessed. I started to see that maybe God was honoring my grandfather's blessing somehow, some way. Maybe my grandfather was predicting my future and God was honoring that. When you ask me now, who do you think Jesus is? And I think Jesus asks all of us this same question. Who do you think I am? I know without a doubt that he is Lord and Savior of the world and he is Lord and Savior of my life. The question that Jesus proposes 
to the disciples as well as to Mike and to all of us is the foundation of the cosmos. I know that's a big statement. More than Einstein's genius formula of E equals MC squared behind the physics of this cosmos, behind it is not hydrogen and just laws, is a person. And that person is God. And God has given His Son. As we next week will start, and many of you in your small groups, and if you haven't gotten to a small group, uh, you can still sign up for that. We do this during our Lenten period. We're looking at the great I Am statements from the Gospel of John. But we look at this morning the essence of what is behind that. And who cares what a rabbi in the first century thinks he is for us to live in L.A. in the year 2012? And the answer is, why would we care? Real simple. The more you know the Son, the more you know the Father. You cannot know the Father if you do not know the Son, Jesus says. And ironically, the more you know the Lord, the more you know yourself. The more I find out who I really am. And nothing will lead you in the middle of this lonely, confusing, this simmering fear. And you notice that of everybody below the surface. We're such a fearful people and anxious ridden. And what we want to know more than how do I have a safe life is who am I? Who am I? This bundle of confusion. And that is revealed to us the more we get to know the Son of God. And as we take a look as we go into this remarkable study, evil's number one tactic has always been from when the serpent lied to Adam and Eve in the garden to the final illusion of the Antichrist in the end of the days is identity theft. The more that Satan can confuse you and me and to lie to us about who we are rather than who God called us to be, they won. But it's ironically that when we come and the more we find out who the Son is, the great I Am, the more we discover who we are. One of these uh, passages that takes a look at this is all the way back into the book of Exodus. You take out your Bible and turn over to Exodus 3. It's on page 44 in your pew Bible. And the name of God Himself. This is one of the most uh, important passages in all of Scripture, certainly to our Jewish friends, and certainly to us as followers of Jesus. You know, names are a fascinating thing out there. You find out people's middle names, and you know, I find out there's a recent study, the most common names last year given to children. This is great. For boys, Aiden was the number one. Jackson, Mason, Liam, and Jacob slid in. Girls is Sophia, Emma, Olivia, and Isabella. Jacob and Isabella, I have not seen, I guess, they're in the Twilight series. Isn't that great? We're naming our kids after vampires. I just love that. <laughs> one thing I know about naming, I know I named our kids. I was, I, it worked with our first one. Always name them with a vowel at the end. So when you yell at them, you can hold it like, Vanessa. But with Paul and Rachel, it just doesn't work as well. But so, okay, there's the pastor's insight. Let's get back to the Bible. <laughs> Exodus 3. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock beyond the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. I want to remind you, he's about 80 years old. 40 years, he thought he was something in Pharaoh's court. 40 years, he thought he was nothing but a fugitive. And now God's going to show him for the next 40 years what God can do with a nothing. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire of a bush. He looked and the bush was blazing, but it wasn't consumed. And Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called out to him of the bush, 
Moses, Moshe. And he said, here I am. And he said, come no closer. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said further, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So this Moses is out there, and this bush is consumed but not burned. And this is so much of life. God's fire purifies, and sometimes it's painful, but it never consumes. When God's fire is on you and me, we don't get burnt out like we're trying to burn our own fires and we're running so hard trying to find life. We just exhaust ourselves. God's fire is the opposite. So he goes to look at this and the Lord says, Moses, freeze. Lose the shoes. Why the shoes? The sandals. Well, for a couple of reasons. One, only a slave was shoeless. You know, it's your shoes, tells you your, your wealth, your status, how we all obsess about that. And second of all, the rawness, the nakedness of being on that ground. So he says, I'm going to send you to free my people. Look at verse 13. Moses said to God, if I come to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent you, me to you. God also said to Moses, you shall say to the Israelites, the Lord. And those four letters are capitalized at the tetragrammaton, H-W-H. The Lord of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever and this is my title for all generations. Now, this intimacy of God revealing his name. Moses says, now when they send me, and they go, what's his name? Well, a name would tell you something about the closeness of that person. And so God says to him, I am that I am. Now, a scholar is someone who takes something simple and explains it in such a confusing fashion. You think the confusion is your fault rather than theirs. That's what scholars do. But as the scholars look at this, and theologians through the ages, we have here up on this slide, when we look at this in the Hebrew, the tetragrammaton are the four letters. But that Omer Elohim, it goes from the right to the left, said God El Moshe to Moses, Yichyeh Asher Yichyeh. That Omer thus says, that Omer Lebanid to the children, the sons Israel of Israel. Now this is fascinating to me because it's as much a verb as it is a noun. No, a participle is a verb that acts like an adjective or a gerund. When I say you don't like my singing, singing is a verb but it's like a noun. This is like I will be who I will be or I am who I am. Categories fall apart here. I am the one, Moses, who is behind it all. I am the one who is the fourth force that physics is looking for. I complete things. There's only three primary colors. It's like he said, I am the fourth primary color. I am the ninth note on the octave. I am the one behind all of this that creates. That's my name. And so, Yahweh is one way of saying those four letters. We know in the Old Testament during the time of the judges and up uh, to David that they spoke the name of God. 
Because in the Ruth, the book of Ruth, second chapter, Boaz says, Yahweh be with you. And the response is, and Yahweh be with you, using his name. But after the exile, it became so holy for Judaism that the name is never spoken. My, one of my mentors, a Polish Jew, a survivor of the Holocaust, would never say this name. And even my saying Yahweh reminds me of how upset he would be. And so what they started saying is Adonai, which means sir, or the Lord. When you bump into somebody in Hebrew, if you were in Israel, you'd say, Shlicha Adonai, excuse me, sir, Adonai. Or your Jewish friends will say this coming Friday night when they pray or Saturday, Hashem, the name. They'll never say it. In fact, one of the raps on Jesus from the early rabbis in the second century, they knew he did miracles. No one could deny that. But how he did that is he figured out and he had written on his hand from Egypt, the secret way of saying the name is how he had that power. That's how much the Jews looked at the reverence of this name. In fact, God says, you will not take my name in vain. Taking his name in vain, what does vain mean? It means useless. Probably one of the most dangerous things we have printed on our currency. And that is exactly in God we trust. That's really close because as a nation, we do not trust in God. That is very close to taking God's name in vain. So this name was important, so he gives this identity to him. Then his name will sometimes, El will be used. That was during the Phoenician Ugaritic of the God. Elohim. When you see God, that's Elohim in the Hebrew. Or then sometimes a theophoric is when you take the name El and you put it in a name. Like when you... It's, not, it's kind of like a holy name. Gabriel means God is my strength. Mikey L, God is like God. Danny L, God is my judge. Israel wrestles with God. Emmanuel, God with us. El Pollo, just seeing if you're listening, getting <laughs> different L, totally. So that's a... <laughs> I didn't do that. Well, uh, theophoric is when you take the name of God and you clip it so that God is in that essence. But so when he says that I am now, you got how holy that is? No one would speak it. The high priest once a year. The reason they can't say it today, the conservative and orthodox, is there's no temple. Because once a day of the year, the high priest would go in to the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur, the day of covering, and say, Yahweh. One time in the year when he's giving blood on behalf of the people's sins. This is why they get a little upset with Jesus. Turn with me over to the Gospel of John and to the 8th chapter on page 871. The name reveals something about the relationship. The, when we had one of our chaplains at our last Presbytery meeting sharing with us. He's been over in Afghanistan for the last year and a half, worked with the Marines and Navy chaplain, and they have a T-shirt that says, U.S. Marines, no greater friend, no worse enemy. What they're saying is, we'll be a friend to you, but you don't want us as an enemy. Jesus is doing that right here. Now, he has already, his accusers have come to him, and he says, which of you convicts me of sin? And they're silent. If I said to you, which of you convicts me on sin? The line starts forming right over here, and we'll go around the room. They can't do it. So they said, you're a Samaritan, have a demon. He says, I don't have a demon. Samaritan was a racial slur. He stands with the hated Samaritans. But then look up here in verse 51. 
Truly I tell you, whoever keeps my word will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know you have a demon. Abraham died and so did the prophets. And you say, Whoever keeps my word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? The prophets died. Who do you claim to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, he from whom you say he is our God, though you do not know him. But I know him. If I would say I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I know him and I keep his word. Your ancestor Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And the Jews said to him, You were not yet fifty years old and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. And they picked up stones to really kill him, to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now, uh, we have a Greek slide here a little uh, earlier in addition that shows what he is saying. Said to them, it starts from the left to the right. Amen, autus, Jesus. Jesus said to them, Amen, Amen, truly, truly. Lego mean I say to you, Prince Abraham Geneste before Abraham was, Ego Ami, I am. He knew exactly what he was doing. And they said, This is blasphemy. And they tried to kill him, but he slid out. You see the raw courage of Jesus. He is saying, The Father sent me. Why do you not believe me? You have never seen me do a sin. You acknowledge the things that I do. Why can't you understand this? Because it was so outside their categories. And he's trying to define a relationship. I am not a prophet. I am. And when people say, do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? A lot of us go, yeah, because you know we're all children of God. Not what Jesus did. He said, I am God the Son. No one else dared to claim that. And he is saying, Our, my relationship with you is not a great advisor or a great counselor. My relationship is God to you. I am the Savior. Now, I have relationships with people, and I'm, I'm known by many names. Some of them I can't say in public, but I'm known by many names. People say, do you like to be called reverend or pastor? I say, either your holiness or butthead. I go by either one, you know. But I got an invitation to a party the other day, and I don't know if I'm going to go to it, because it came to my house, and on it, it said, resident. That's how lonely my life is. I think I'm going to go resident. You wouldn't go to somebody that said resident. Sometimes I'm called, is it reverend? Is it the office? Is it doctor? Is it the degree? I'm called pastor. And uh, some will call me Mark. Then we're a little closer. My, but my, my kids call me dad. I, there's a whole different relationship. Carolyn and I, uh, when we first started dating, you know, remember we called Lover, Laverner. Remember Laverne and Shirley? So we call each other Laverner and... I realize I just shared something intimate from her face that we'll be talking about at lunch. I can tell that right now, but that's a different kind of a relationship. And when we say God is one thing, when we say I am is the one, but Paul says, when you cry out, Abba, Father, it's Daddy, it is the Spirit Himself bearing witness with your spirit that you are a child of God, and if a child, then a co-heir with Christ. You would dare. I remember flying on a plane next to this Muslim guy, a great guy, and he said, you Christians, you Christians, 
You treat God like a buddy. Allah, the God, the Holy One, you would never, no Muslim would call Him Father. And you call, and He's right spot on, my dad. The one who yearns jealously over your spirit and mine. The one who longs, longs for us to be with Him. This Holy One. And so when Jesus says that to them, they're understanding who they are. The more we know the Son, the more you know the Father. The Rabbi Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle, said he is the visible image of the invisible God. When you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. He is the Son, He is the visible image. And the interesting thing is the more I know Jesus, the more I can figure out me. hundred years ago this week, a social psychologist by the name of Charles Cooley wrote a landmark book, Looking Glass Self. And in that he was proposing, this was a hundred years ago, that your identity is a looking glass. As you interact with others, you figure out who you are. That was pretty radical a century ago. The idea is that first of all, you try to, you imagine how you appear to others. You do all the time. That's why your face is harder to remember than other people's faces. And as you interact with them, how you look. Then you imagine the judgment of that appearance. How do they judge you? And then you and I develop ourselves according to that judgment. Would a rose really, as Shakespeare said, be as sweet by any other name? Do you like the name you have? Most developmental psychologists will tell you that children that hate their names, some people were named after other people or family names or, or hopes or heroes, that if they hate it later on, if it's very individual, they like it. And some of the names are kind of uh, out there a little bit. And because there are more out there names now than in the last century, because, quote, according to one of the researchers, Dr. Ken Evans, our strip mall homogenous Applebee's culture creates a strong impulse to individuate ourselves and our children. In other words, that means is that's why we name, make up these names, these bizarre names. And the kids hate them at first. I just saw that one uh, parent changed their name when they found out their girl was a great ballerina. They changed it to Anastasia, legally in the court, because they had named her Bertha. I guess Bertha the ballerina didn't go down real well or something. Another really shy kid, they've changed to Tilly. You know what they named him? Attila. Who names their kid Attila? But later on, as you grow up, this sense of individual, you start to own that. And when, have you noticed, when there's someone you don't like, they have the name like Joe. You just can't stand Joe. The next Joe you meet, you memory file to the bad Joe. Until a new Joe can help you rebundle those memories. You tell people in this city, you are a Christian. And you have a lot of bad memories they have of people to overcome. That's why it's so important that we release you and your ministry and your power. And so that you can say, I am a follower of Christ. Christian, which is a derogatory term in the book of Acts, that means little Christ. That means, yes, that I'm a Christian. And when they see that you're loving and caring and accepting, even when you confront sin, then they start to redevelop the side understanding of it. Jesus, what did he know when he was with his first followers? Turn over there to that gospel, to Matthew 16, page 798. The more we see ourselves, the more we change. Uh, another study, uh, as I was preparing for this, was a great one. It was done by Dr. Arthur Beamer and Edward Diner. 
up in San Francisco. They took 373 children and they ran a test on them at Halloween. That they set up these different houses. And when they went into the house, they had already told the adults who were there. Some of the kids greet and go, that's a great outfit. Come on in. And then the others come and say, couldn't you try it a little better? Huh, huh, huh. Isn't it fun to run experiments on children at Halloween? And then, though they had, they told them, they said, the bowl of candy's down at the end of the hall. Only take one. And the adult left the room. Now, remarkably to me, of the 363 children, only 72 took more than one. I mean, that's pretty impressive. The ones who didn't, though, didn't because of a reason. They put, they were either alone, individual, or they put a mirror behind the candy bowl so they could see themselves. And when they saw themselves take just one, they couldn't do it in two, unless they were with a group. And if one of the kids takes two, the rest go, I'm in two. And they just took handfuls. And it shows this power of what we think of ourselves according to the world out there. But look what Jesus says, verse 13. When Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he said to his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? He said, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now notice that, that they can only relate to what they know. Jesus is so outside the categories. Have you noticed that everything in the world that you've never eaten is supposed to taste like chicken? Have you noticed that? Hi, would you like some weasel? It tastes like chicken. I don't know what chicken must taste like, but we try to relate it to something. It must be Elijah. It must be one of the prophets. Well, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this. You didn't figure this out, but my Father has revealed this to you. And you are Petra, and upon this Petros rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not stand against it. By the way, I always like to remind us, the gates of hell, no one is ever attacked by a gate. The gates of hell are supposed to be keeping us out. You and I are supposed to be penetrating the valley and the west side and the studios and this world. They're not going to keep us out. So it looks like a pretty good day for Peter, huh? Our Catholic brothers and sisters will say that's why the primacy of Peter that the apostolic succession of, after that, of the popes. Protestants say, no, it's the confession. Thou art the Christ that he built the church upon. I think the answer is yes, because we don't give Peter a lot of due for how God used him. So he's thinking like, wow, I have the keys of the kingdom. Look at verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This must never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on divine things but on human things. Wow, tough day for Peter, huh? One moment, you are the rock. And he says, get behind me, Satan. By the way, I think Jesus is speaking to Satan, not Peter. I think Satan is using Peter's good intentions. Didn't Jesus just say, you are going to be the one I build my church ecclesia on? And Jesus said, I'm, they're going to betray me and kill me. And Peter says, not on my watch. And Jesus says, he doesn't want to go to the cross. He knows what is waiting. He doesn't want to say yes. 
And he says, get behind me, Satan. Your thoughts are not of God's, but of man's. Any of you in leadership, remember this. You are a servant of the mission, not individuals. Now, if we go out here as a brother, as a follower of Christ, and I see an accident on the 405, and there is a fire in that car, I am called as a follower of Christ to go and to help that person, even if I know that I will die at that risk, and my children will be fatherless, and Carolyn will become a widow. I am called to lay down my life for others. Jesus would wash the feet of Judas. But you get between him and his father's mission, and it's going to be a whole different response. And likewise, we are called to love individuals, yes. But if God has you in a place, you fulfill what God has called you to do. You play the game heavenward, not to individuals. And even in the, as we move ahead, and the tough thing is, as TJ is saying, that the Lord is taking him to the next chapter in this, and as we look, and we have some good people that are going to come and succeed, but as the Lord takes TJ this next chapter and being obedient to what the Lord does. And that we're all, as they say, arcs in a waterfall. And as we go through these tougher times that we're in, and we think they're tough now, this is just training for what's coming. And so he says to him, you are Peter. God says to you, you are a daughter and a son of the living God. You're not a bag of evolutionary chemicals with just desires and responses. You are not just a marketer's road pack to be used. You are not what your parents, what your family, what the church says to you. You are who God says you are. Amen? And the more you discover who He is and you discover who you are, then you know what you're supposed to be doing. And those things change out all the time. Remember what Jesus will say in John 8, we'll read in a few weeks. Pilate comes in and says, Are you the king of the Jews? And what does Jesus say? What do you think, Pilate? Pilate goes, Am I a Jew? Your own people have handed you over. And Jesus keeps saying, What do you think, Pilate? Did others say this? What do you think? Who do you think I am? He won't let it go. And all of us, he comes to us. And to all of our friends and all of our family, he says, Who do you think I am? Who do you think I am? And the remarkable thing is when we say that finally when we quit our fighting and we bend the knee, when you know whose you are, then you know who you are. I've told you before that I had kind of a second touch healing of my life. After high school when I had given my life to Christ, when I said if there's a God out there and you're so tough, I dare you to change my life. At least Mike... Mizrahi was smart enough to say, show yourself to me. I said, go ahead, God, change my life. Because if I was God, I would have went, okay, how's a toad? How's that? But he slowly did. But, you know, I was still so messed up and broken up. And I hung around crazy people. And who was I? Was I a partier? Was I an idiot? Was I what my father who had left us said or my mother or others? Who was I? And I remember going on a Young Life retreat down to Frontier Ranch in the mountains of Colorado. And after they play the song, you're supposed to go out into the stars and see if you want to give your life to Christ. But I'd already done that. But I went out and I was just so confused. And I looked up and I said, God, who am I? And in one of the most profound moments of my life, I sensed the Lord communicate 
your mark. You were saint and sinner, strength and weakness, all of your past. And I love you. And my life would never be the same. Now I don't need to sell Jesus or to tell people who they are. I just need to connect them to the Lord and let God reveal who they are. What does it mean when we really know that we belong to the Lord? That I am is the one who says, I will guide you, I will direct your steps, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. What is it that says when he says, I am who I am, the one who is beyond it all? I am your own heavenly Father. I'm the one who loves you. And I am the one that gives you someday a name which no man will ever know. You know the weird little idiosyncrasies that you and I have that we don't even tell others and nothing in this planet seems to match? It's because you weren't made for this planet. And when we stand before the Lord and He gives the name that's perfect, we'll finally say, that's what I was being made for. When I was first went out for football, I wanted to throw that ball. And what does the coach have us doing? Wind sprints. How does that help with handling the ball? You need some lungs. And the dumb thing of the sport I did of boxing, we kept doing weights for our legs. Why your legs? Because it takes as much energy from your legs to receive a blow as your upper body. I remember when our kids were doing piano, and we had to do the Hannon scales and practice going, why are we doing the scales? I want to play Mozart and jazz. you got to learn the scales. A friend who retired from the Air Force told me that he remembers... When he wanted, all he wanted to do was to fly jets, and the first time he got to flight school, they put him in this bucket, and they blindfolded him, and it went into a swimming pool upside down underwater. And he was sitting underwater blindfolded saying, I just wanted to fly jets. <laughs> Why did they do that? He knew when he was shot down over the water, and he had to ditch his plane. Why? And you and I, we say, God, why am I going through this? And someday we'll say... Lord, you're brilliant. And he'll say, thanks. <laughs> Welcome home. I am the one who so loved the world that I gave my only boy on that cross. That whoever believes will never perish, but have right now eternal life. I am who I am. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that in this world of confusion and loneliness, God, when we run around looking for the world's trinkets and statues and acclaim and applause, when we're so desperately trying to figure who we are that you stand, our Heavenly Father, right behind us. And when we turn around and make a step towards you and we fall into those big, strong arms of yours, and we feel you rock us in your lap against your chest, we don't find a scolding dictator or a tyrant, though you could be because of our sin. But we find someone who loves us so much, you picked up our bill on that cross. So Lord, I pray that we would have your identity. That we, the world would know that we have love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. Not because of who we are, but because of who you are. So we thank you, Lord, as we come to you now with our tithes and our offerings. Bless the gift and the giver alike. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen.